0: But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, you know that it is with fear and trembling that I speak these words and prepare to preach them. I pray that anything that I say that is not of you, that might cause undue terror or burden to my brothers and sisters here, would not make, it, uh, make their way to their heart, but would fall away. I pray that you would, however, help us to hear the voice of love in these strong and severe warnings. And may these words have the effect that they are intended to have on us, our faith and repentance. pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if your mind ever drifts to think about the worst thing that could ever happen to you. But today, our passage is answering that question for you. Losing a hand is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Losing a foot is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Nor losing an eye. Not even being cast into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. A stone weighing several hundred pounds that you could not possibly swim against. Not even that is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. The worst thing that can happen to you is for you to shipwreck your faith or the faith of another and thus incur the judgment of hell. Whoever says that Jesus does not use fear to motivate has not read this passage. Here is the voice of love being uncomfortably honest with you you can almost feel the heat of hell in his warnings. He is letting your hand feel the heat so that you run, run the other way. So I ask you to take this warning seriously. I ask you to open yourself to the real possibility of hell. I hope you will steel yourself for this difficult word and track with it that it might save you and those whose young faith God may hold you responsible for. There are two kinds of fire in this passage. Where the passage becomes most confusing, probably to most of us, there at verse 49, you can look look there where it says, for everyone will be salted with fire. There we have a transition as one commentator put it, from the fire of perdition or judgment to the fire of purification. From a fire that punishes to a fire that refines. And so we will wade into these difficult words, both difficult in their interpretation and their application, with these two fires as our anchors. And here's the, the through line, <clears throat> the idea that I think ties them together. It is better to enter heaven through fire than go unscathed into hell. It is better to enter heaven through fire than to go unscathed into hell. <clears throat> so two fires. A fire that punishes and a fire that purifies. Purifies. One that serves as a warning of judgment, the other is a call to authentic discipleship. Discipleship that costs something. So let's let's jump in. A fire that punishes. We'll be in verses 42 through 48 here, and we'll spend most of our time here in a couple subheadings to just help us stay organized. We'll look at the punishment that Jesus is describing here. then we'll look at the crime that deserves such a punishment, and then I will offer a bit of relief about the kind of help that God offers us regarding this topic. So let's start looking at the punishment. You see it there in verse 43 at the end, that phrase, unquenchable fire, and then again in verse 48 where it says, where the worm does not, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. By the way, you, you may notice that verses 44 and 46 are not included, and it's not a typo. They're not included because uh, some manuscripts repeat the phrase about the worm and the fire after each occurrence of hell, but the, be- the best textual evidence suggests that the original manuscripts only had it in verse 48. So that uh, that's, explains the omission there. At any rate, <clears throat> hell or Gehenna in the place where neither the worm nor the fire dies, these are one and the same. These are one and the same. So let's do some digging about this place, Gehenna. Well, this is the Greek word for hell. And it comes from the Hebrew phrase for the Hinnom Valley, which was a real place. And here's how one scholar describes this valley. <clears throat> it is a steep ravine to the southwest of Jerusalem where human sacrifice had been practiced under Ahaz and Manasseh, who were two of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. He continues, The detestable practice of human sacrifice was later excoriated by Jeremiah and abolished by King Josiah, who desecrated the Hinnom Valley by making it a garbage dump. And so this place where wicked kings had promoted the practice of child sacrifice was later and quite poetically made by a righteous king into a pit of refuse. This is a place with a sordid past. The scholar continues, To the image of smoldering putrefaction in the Hinnom Valley, Mark appends a saying that comes from the final verse of Isaiah where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Its use here conforms in one important respect to its use in Isaiah where it concludes two chapters of promise and salvation by a final forceful warning of the consequences of rebelling against God. So as in the tradition of Moses, who at the end of Deuteronomy puts before the people death and life, blessing and curse, so Isaiah at the end of his book puts before the people life and death. And now Jesus is doing the same. He is putting before us life and death. He is saying, choose life, even if it costs you an eye, because hell is a place where you do not want to go. It is a horrible place for which the only fitting metaphor is a pit of refuge, or of refuse, that used to be a place of child sacrifice. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, it is a place of unending agony and punishment. It is an awful place. So that's the punishment that Jesus is warning us against. What is the crime? What could possibly deserve something like this? Well, the crime is repeated four times in this passage. And it's this phrase you see, cause to sin. In fact, in in the Greek version of this text, it is the third word in verse 42. It's up front as the problem that Jesus is identifying Scandalizo is the verb. and In most cases where this word is used, it does not indicate just sin generally, any form of disobedience, but specifically to the sin of falling away. So for example, here's how it's used in Mark, which would have the most control over its use here. So for example, earlier in, in Mark's gospel, in the parable of the, of the sower, it describes how one person responds to the gospel, that at first they receive it with joy, but then when, tra- when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. That's the verb there. Or later in Mark, Jesus uses the word to describe the, di- the disciples fleeing from him at his arrest, and he tells them, you will all fall away. We could go elsewhere in the Gospels in the New Testament where the word is used in this way to describe falling away or abandoning Christ. So it is not merely cause to sin or cause to stumble once, but it is a cause to stumble in such a way that you do not get back up, so to speak. It is referring to some kind of final abandonment of Christ. When taken that way, it helps us to understand the severity of the punishment because the punishment fits the crime. To abandon Christ or to cause someone else to abandon Christ leads to severe judgment. The punishment for abandoning the resurrection of the life is undying hell, undying death. Now that the severity of the Jesus' warnings, I hope, makes some sense to us, let's give some thought of what it might mean to cause one of these little ones to fall away. Which, by the way, I and many others take to mean those with young and impressionable faith. So not only children, but certainly including children. And here I... I tread very carefully because the passage does not indicate very clearly what specifically these sins may be. The emphasis is much more on the results of the sin than on any sort of description of the sins themselves. And so I tread carefully, but from context we have some clues. Contextually, if you're just looking at Mark chapter 9, it could be the sins of self-absorption and self-importance whereby we argue about who is greater than one another and we don't care about the children in our midst. This is what the disciples had been doing. It could be the stink of pride coming from so-called disciples that causes a young disciple to turn away because of the wretched smell of pride. could be something like that. Another example that has some biblical weight to it is false teaching from spiritual leaders. You know, in the prophets especially, the people who get the most heat for Israel's rebellion are the priests and the kings who are supposed to lead the people in the law and not away from it. And so one who espouses false teaching to the harm of a young and impressionable disciple may be the kind of person Jesus has in view here. One more for us. Given the backdrop of Gehenna and the child sacrifice practiced there, I can't help but think that one form and probably the most vile form of causing a little one to stumble is abuse. If a child grows up hearing God's name worn on the lips of his or her leaders or parents or adults, In a community, and then that same adult sacrifices that child, as it were, on the altar of their self-indulgence, that does untold harm to a child, and you'd be better off being thrown into a sea with a millstone tied around your neck than what you will endure in judgment from God. Abuse ravages a child and a teen, and an adult. The dynamics of abuse, the power differential is that the abused is the little one who believes, and the abuser is the one responsible for what he takes. And so I don't know exactly what it means to cause another to stumble. But I know this, that you and I had better be very careful that we don't. Christians ought to look around themselves and see in others, and especially in children, a faith that they, are called to be, to, uh, that they are called to nurture and to be very, very careful of misleading someone's faith through false teaching or through the twisted teaching of, of hypocrisy, of abuse in a Christian context. Your responsibility and mine does not end there. We are not only responsible in some way for the f- faith of those uh, within, uh, uh, for those with impressionable and young faith. We are also responsible to rid ourselves of anything that may cause us to fall away. That's the metaphor, the, or, <clears throat> excuse me, the metaphor in verses forty-three through forty-seven is basically amputation. If something in your body is going to kill you, cut it off. If you have gangrene below the knee, hack it off to keep the rest of your body alive. That's what's being described here. Similarly, it is better to radically remove sin and temptation in your life before it leads you away from eternal life and into the pit of hell. I like how John Owen said it. He said, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You are engaged in a battle for your life in which you have some responsibility. And you have a real enemy trying to lure you into death through your sin. The risk for us here is that we will not take this warning seriously. One church father, Origen, took this command so seriously that he actually castrated himself because his sexual organs were causing him to sin. It's too bad he doesn't know how metaphor works, but at least he took this seriously. Do we take seriously the threat of sin? There is such a thing as unrepentant sin in our lives that we may come to love so much that we choose it over Jesus. An affair or a sexual addiction or the beginning stages of gangrene in those areas. Could be the love of money. <clears throat> could be competition with others. Could be pride. It could be anger that is growing in you like a fire soon to consume your entire life. Jesus would tell us, remove the sin entirely and remove not only the sin but the temptation. Throw out your computer if you have to or your phone. Pour out your alcohol or give your spouse the credit card. Do what you have to do it's for you to destroy your life and faith with unrepentant sin or with a temptation that you think you are strong enough to battle with, but you are not. Take severe, immediate action. Where the call of discipleship comes up against that thing that you hold dearly, that little sin you love to nurture, that fortress you love to go and find and burrow in, that is where you must amputate. Amputate. Do not underestimate the threat that is before you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I promise some words of help. Let me offer them to you. Here's a promise from Romans. <clears throat> To live by the flesh is death. To live by the Spirit is life and peace. Repentance is not, in the end, a call to die. It is a call to live through the death of sin. It is the call to die to that which kills and live to the God who gives you life and peace. So if you think you cannot afford repentance, I am here to tell you, you cannot afford not to repent. Repentance is the gift of life. Jesus is motivating you with the reality of what awaits unrepentant sin. Motivating you to enter life. Another word of help. The picture here is not sinlessness. We are going to have sin in our lives until we die. Period. Until we are delivered from the body of death, we suffer its fall, which includes our reflex to sin. Even the holiest person you know still sins. Jesus is not saying be sinless. He's saying be repenting. Where you should be concerned is where you have a sin you will not forsake. Where you have an unrepentant attitude, where you are knowingly keeping sin Alive. One more word of hope before we move on to our last point. Let me state very simply for us the truth of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is not trying to trick you. He wants you to be saved, and he's telling you how. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who begins to transform you through the saving grace of repentance from the inside out. It is his grace leading you to repentance. He does not do your repenting for you as A.W. Tozer says it, but he is showing you sin and giving you the promises of life to aid you. And so if you feel the pressure of these words from Jesus, do not turn inward and rely on your own strength for repentance to lift up and cast away the pressure here. Instead, Do what you're doing now. Listen to his voice in scripture. Receive his help in the meal. Gather with his people or your fellow pilgrims in repentance. Pray, partake of the means of grace that he has appointed to lead you in repentance. But do repent. Do repent. Faith without works is dead. Living faith looks like repentance. Well, we've been talking about the fire that punishment, or the fire that punishes. Jesus warns of the judgment of hell for those who cause another to fall away or who choose their own sin over Christ. What's the other fire? We all pass through fire one way or another. What's the other fire? Well, we turn now to our last point. There is a fire that purifies. The fire that purifies. We see this described in verses 49 through 50. You know, Interpretively, these are difficult verses. Mark seems to be grouping together sayings of Jesus that are likely disparate, from each other chronologically, that is, spoken at different times from each other, but are thematically connected, and so he's grouped them here into a bit of a mixed metaphor. Let me show you two biblical biblical motifs that are converging here in these verses. The first motif is this idea of salt in sacrifice. So, for example, in Leviticus 2, God says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Excuse me. In the New Testament, when Jesus teaches about salt, as he is here in verse 50, he is often referring to holy living. And so you have this idea here of someone's holy living. Being a part of their worship of God. You know, you might think of Romans 12:1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Holy living is an essential part of our discipleship. Holiness, as opposed to unrepentant sin, is a marker of a true disciple. Jesus is calling for salt in our lives. Well, then mixed in with all this, you have this idea of purifying fire. It says you will be salted with fire. Many commentators see a connection to Malachi 3, verses 2 through 3 here, which says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. You know, this is likely the backdrop for John the Baptist when he says about Christ, he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. That is with the refining, purifying fires of tribulation. So, if we take these motifs together, what we have is a charge to be a salty, enduring, living sacrifice to God. An offering that is tested, salted by the fires of tribulation. What are those fires? Well, they're the sufferings you endure in the name of Christ, they are the mortification of the flesh the difficulties of repentance. They are the stripping away of our earthly consolations. A true disciple endures these things so that rather than tribulations becoming a cause for our falling away, as they were in the parable of the sober, instead they become a mark that a disciple expects to receive. A mark that not only comes to comfort you, but also instructs the weaker in the faith in what to do in trial and tribulation. Endure in holiness. And so what we have here is an alternative. Instead of falling away and incurring the judgment of hell, instead, Jesus calls us to endure the fire of tribulation while maintaining holiness. Instead of a faith that falls away, a faith that endures. Instead of indulging the flesh, we cut away the works of the flesh, even when it costs us, because it is better to enter heaven through fire than hell unscathed. Some of you may be wondering, where is the help in this? This feels like a lot of pressure. On the one hand, I want you to feel the heat. Scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And trembling. We must always preach grace, but sometimes our preaching of grace can blunt the real warnings of Jesus to be serious about repentance. I like how J.C. Ryle says it. It is not possible to say too much about Christ, but it is quite possible to say too little about hell so I want us to know that hell is a real possibility. But it is not a possibility for those who take refuge in Christ. Know that if you are in Christ, God's power is guarding you for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is shepherding you Intending to you and disciplining you in love. He is even telling you very difficult things in His Word that you might walk in repentance. He has appointed means for you to receive grace, and He has given you the strength to repent. He is not trying to trick you, but listen to Him. Listen to him and take him seriously. Let me end with these words from Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None who take refuge in him will be condemned. If you are in Christ, God is with you in the fire of tribulation and he will not cast you into the fires of hell repent and believe let's pray father please continue to speak to us your love your assurance of our salvation in christ You search our hearts. You see into our depths. Lead us into repentance. Help us to be honest about the things in our lives that we need to amputate. Help us to be true, repenting disciples. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.